Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. This series is sponsored by Long Thread Media, publishers of Spinoff, Piecework, and Handwoven magazines. Find us online and subscribe at longthreadmedia.com. I'm your host, co-founder Anne Marrow. I'm here with teacher, author, and illustrator Franklin Habit. Welcome, Franklin. Hey, thanks, Anne. So good to see you this morning. It's good to be here. I started off in my in my textile and craft journey as a knitter, and I've noticed that knitters tend to think of you as kind of one of ours. We 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 sort of put a claim on you. But as I as I see your work, that really kind of doesn't sum it up. So I was wondering if we could start with you telling me about your sort of textile journey and your current interests. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Well, I mean, knitting is kind of at the heart of what I do even now. Um, but my my fascination has always been with textiles generally and anything to do with textiles. So that includes the history of um, the creation of textiles and the history of fashion as it connects with textiles and all of these things for reasons that honestly that I do not understand have have always been interesting to me since I was a little tiny child. Aside from the fact that my grandmother and mother both sewed, um, although they didn't really involve me much in that end of things, there's there's no real reason for it. I just love fabric and I have yet to run into a way of making fabric that I I don't find intriguing. And so lately what has been nice is I've been able to continue to do a lot with knitting but also expand into embroidery and sewing and um, the history of those things, you know, in addition to the usual knitting adjacent stuff like crochet and spinning and and all of that. So, yeah, so it's nice lately. I, I feel like I've been able to do more and more varied things and that's making life good. And I have seen at least one loom in, in your in your various textile practice. Oh, I didn't even mention weaving. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I don't know how I could forget that because that's, yeah, that's the biggest tool is um, even though my loom is small as looms go, it's um, um, the, the the tiniest little um, shacked floor loom that you can get, the wolf pup. Um, but I have been enjoying the heck out of that thing. I finally got a workroom big enough for me to extend it so I can weave on it. And that's been a hoot, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I can't believe I forgot weaving. Well, it's, you know, I, I don't know whether you found this, but as I have made my, say, hobby, although, you know, pleasure or whatever, my work, then I have to find other ways of extending it. So I became a knitter and then I then knitting became part of my job. So I started spinning and, and weaving. and Yeah, it, it all leads on and on and on and on. It's it's just, it's a web or, oh, these, oh you can you can smack me these stupid, like, textile metaphor it's a web or a thread or it's all connected i just but it really is it really is and and that's what i love is expanding in any direction wherever my curiosity goes so i mean that's um my i i guess part of my hobby uh that's how i'll justify it anyway is collecting antique paraphernalia that's related to the creation of textiles and that's just the intersection of the fact that i've always loved old stuff and it's old stuff that I can sort of justify by saying, well, really, for me, this is a practical invention. You know, so that's that's how I that's how I uh, make sense of, you know, instead of buying a nice, shiny, new um, 
you know, nitty naughty. It's like, no, I can, I can pay much more for this old gnarly, you know, beat up nitty naughty because it's an antique, but I can still use it. So you've been sharing some of these antique tools with the readers of Piecework. Yes. Oh, yes. I'm loving that gig. I really am. It's, um, <laughs> I said, um, uh, I think it was on Twitter the other day that I one of the things I love best about the piecework gig is now I feel a lot less guilty about my clutter since I feel like my clutter has now found its purpose. You know, now it's source material for me to write about, and that and the, just the fact that piecework as a publication exists makes me super happy because it is a like paper gathering place for nerds like me like people who also think that you know a really close-up look at capsule sewing kits from the beginning of the 20th century well oh that's interesting you know makes me feel good that there are other people out there who think that that's interesting because um there are none close at hand you know there are none here at home so yeah when those those articles come out and somebody else says i've also always been fascinating with darning eggs Yay! I'm not alone. That is one of the joys. We love having this, you know, paper magazine that collects all these things, but the ability to connect with people, you know, mm. even like this morning where I'm sitting in Colorado and you're sitting in Chicago, but the ability to make those connections with other people who have your precise, specific, unusual interests. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Because I mean, you know, it's just you have to, to face it, we are not as numerous as let's say fans of Star Trek. Um we are we are harder to find, um, which you know we're just rare. That's all. We're rare and special, and piecework is making it possible for me to connect with more people, who who have my particular weird fascinations. You know, I mean, I'm not, maybe not as weird as the the guy two doors down from me who um, collects taxidermy, like very large taxidermy, which I. No, in part because I've been chatting. I've chatted with him on the street as we walked our dogs, but also because you can see like the enormous taxidermied um, ostrich in his living room window. So, which my dog finds especially fascinating. <laughs> Roz, I think, wants to go and and play with the ostrich in the window, but it it never it never reacts to her. I actually I remember that the, the I don't know if it was your very first article for piecework. It must have been at least ten years ago was about the smock museum and and i w thought that, that that this was a, a an entire museum devoted to aprons and it took me a while to realize that <laughs> that that is a very i mean it's a perfectly logical conclusion to draw but yes no that the, the name of the coal patch in southwestern pennsylvania that my that my grandmother grew up in that just Tiny, 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 tiny. You could fit all of smock on the head of a pin. Um, and yet, and yet, um, in addition to my grandmother, one of the the well-known um, people who came out of smock was Andy Warhol. My grandmother lived a few company houses down from that family. Yeah, right? Wow. Isn't that just the... And, and I did not realize this, mind you, until I watched... A documentary back in the early days of Netflix. I remember getting this Andy Warhol documentary, and it was about the aftermath of his death and dealing with his estate primarily. And it opened up with this view that looked sort of familiar, this just kind of like Green Hills 
and a field kind of view. And then it, the, the, the uh, title fades in and it says Smock, Pennsylvania. And I said, what? And apparently um, part of what Warhol's brothers did after his death with some of the money that they got from his estate was they went back and bought property in Smock. So I said to my grandmother, did you know about this? And she said, oh, yeah, the Warholas lived about three houses down from us. And I said, and you never thought to mention this to me. And she said, well, I never really, I mean, no, I didn't know if you'd be interested. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, <laughs> that. I just really, yes. Yeah, so, so Smock produced coal, my grandmother and Andy Warhol, and then all of that home needlework that I wrote about in that, gosh, that was a long time ago. It had to be at least a decade. Yeah. Yes. And my grandmother, by the way, I will say was thrilled with that article. She was really, it, it was a big deal for her to see, to see her town in print. I bet. So you have these small town in, in, in Pennsylvania connecting with Victorian era needlework. Well, you were saying that they all connect, but, uh, how how cool that the, all of these lives come together in there. It it it's very true, and it, in my grandmother, the grandmother that I'm talking about, I mean, she was in effect. She was my first needlework teacher. Um, although we did work in secret most of the time because I was a boy, and so I wasn't supposed to be helping her with uh, with by the, with her daily work. She um, was uh, a, a, a young widow. Um, very early on in her marriage, um, she became a young widow and supported the family by, um, partly by taking in sewing and then partly by going out to sew, um, for a tailor and dry cleaner that was in the little town where she lived. And, um, I was taught to sew not for any sort of sweet Norman Rockwell reason of, you know, grandma, grandson bonding. It was more that I had a seven-year-old's eyesight and tiny little fingers. And I was interested. So she taught me to sew so I could help with things like hemming trousers when I happened to be visiting. And and I had to do a professional job because if I didn't, she would make me rip out the work and redo it again because it was something that was being paid for. So she taught me and because of the way that she grew up in a, a, a relatively poor way during a relatively poor time, she was a depression baby. There are things in Godey's um, and in a lot of the 19th century needlework instruction manuals and things like that, that were not even a generation removed from my grandmother and the way that she did things. They were still using a treadle machine when my father was a teenager in the 60s that the the same cast iron treadle machine was still very much in use for everything um including things that it's really funny that occasionally i'm told uh it was never used for for example my my great grandmother so my grandmother's mother um she did she did quilting on the sewing machine both both piecing and quilting were done on the sewing machine. In fact, according to my grandmother, almost all the piecing was done on the sewing machine. Um, but things like that, buttonholes by hand, all of that, it was still being, it was stuff I learned. So I have a, I think for someone of my generation, I have a bizarrely close connection to sources like goatees and, and dressmaking manuals from that time. They don't seem terribly foreign. Not that, not mind you that I was sewing crinolines and 
and muscles and things like that. But, you know, the, the techniques are the same. It's the projects that change. So speaking of foreign, I mean, one of the things you need to do when you look at those old, uh, you know, pattern books and things like that is sort of decipher the language. And mm -hmm. there's kind of a code to it. It's it's interesting with sewing, not quite so much um, sewing and embroidery. The the lingo is much more consistent over time, but with knitting certainly there there's a learning curve most of it happily is pretty simple vocabulary substitution but you do run into um it and again i find this fascinating more than i find it frustrating um the first knitting books only appeared in the first quarter of the 19th century and when they appeared what they were attempting to do was take a craft which had always or almost always been directly transmitted from person to person and they were trying to pin it down on a printed page and you can see the struggle that's going on because there was no consistent vocabulary and and not just oh from nation to nation but in a place like England even from county to county there would be differences in knitting vocabulary, even what you called knitting needles. So you'll find references to uh, to needles, but you'll also find references to pins. And then um, I very recently, in a spectacularly bizarre book called Little Kitty's Knitting Needles, um, I have found that uh, it, it mentions as a uh, in the introductory chapter that um, uh, in her particular part of Yorkshire. They were referred to as pricks. It says that almost every man, woman, and child in this part of Yorkshire handled the pricks. <laughs> well, okay. How about that? So that was a new one. So I added that in. But it, you, you see this, you know, like that sort of thing. And also that you know, there were five or seven different words just for the pearl stitch that pop up all the time. So knitting can be, you know, it's not quite a Rosetta Stone situation, but sometimes it can be fairly close. And I think it's interesting that when you started teaching, probably mostly teaching knitting, what kind of classes were you teaching? Were they more basic well, I, or were they? It's funny that you would say that because I, I get asked that question um, a fair amount when some, whenever anyone finds out that I teach knitting. Oh, what, what do you teach? What do you teach? Especially, especially knitters will want to know. And what I usually say is that honestly, I, I felt like by the time I showed up, all the specialties had been taken. So I just fill in the cracks. Honestly, I would sort of look around and see what did I feel I could teach that um, either nobody else was teaching it or the folks that I knew that were teaching it, it wasn't sort of their special subject, um, or at least my approach I felt would be different enough that I wasn't going to step on somebody else's turf because I've, I've tried not to do that. So um, the, the only family resemblance among, among my classes would be that they are mostly technique and that my kind of two key principles for all the stuff I teach is number one, it's not that big a deal, meaning there is no there are no techniques that I teach that I agree are dramatic or very difficult or anything like that. Um, and also I, I like to push my students. Like if I'm doing a technique class, I really don't want to just teach the how-to, but I want to teach the how-to and the how else 
and the why and the what else. And, and I would like my students to leave even an introductory technique class like introduction to mosaic or introduction to intarsia. I want them to feel like not only can they do it, but they can go out and play with it and explore, explore it because I, th that's what I like to do. So I, I try to make that possible for my students. I was curious whether some of the classes that you teach that now seem a little bit more historically inspired, you know, embroidery on, on knitting. And I suppose mm -hmm. that's not necessarily historic, but it ties in with your other interests. Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand, you know, you have a plaid class. And I was wondering, did you start off with knitting plaid and sort of see that you could draw people into embroidery or is it all sort of a, a yeah, I, a lot, a big part of it, like embroidery on knits came about, honestly, because I wanted to start embroidering more. And I was at a, a point where if I couldn't do it for work, then I couldn't do it at all. So I thought and I thought and I thought and I finally figured out a version of an embroidery on knits class that shows would agree to put on the schedule. Because at first I had a lot of resistance for that one in particular. Um, oh, knitters hate embroidery. They won't do it. They won't sign up for this class. We can't sell this class. And then um, the good old the good old Madrona Fiber Arts Retreat, which then like ended and sort of has been uh, replaced by the Red Alder Retreat, um, was Madrona. Um, Suzanne at Madrona said, "Oh, sure, we can do an embroidery class," and it sold out in something like a minute and thirty seven seconds. And then suddenly other shows said, sure, sure, we can do that. That would be great. We can, we can, yeah. But yeah, it's, you know, if I really wanted to do it, I try to make a class out of it. And it has to be something that I enjoy too. Because um, if I don't like it, then I, I can't teach it. I can't find a way to make it. I can't actually forget about the students. I can't find a way to stomach talking about it for three hours. And there are a couple classes I've retired because I got to a point where I thought, if I have to t teach people to do this one more time, I'm just going to combust in front of the class and turn into a little heap of ashes. And so, no, I'm not teaching this one anymore. That includes a couple of classes where people are still kind of, and it's it's flattering. They're still like, well, why don't you teach this class anymore? Well, because I stopped finding it fun. When I can find a way to make it interesting and fun again, I'll, I'll put it back on the on the menu. So you do some design work. It does seem like mostly your work is around writing and teaching. Is that right? Mm -hmm. That's very true. Yeah. I, I, I like making things up. I really hate writing patterns. I really, really... The only, the only pattern design... Um, or pattern work that I've I've been doing actually for uh, this year, really, when I think about it, is either um, occasional patterns for my my Patreon patrons, um, or the monthly uh, the monthly patterns for outfits for the Dolores doll, that ongoing Dolores project that I that I do with webs. Um, those are okay. Those are those are things I can find amusing, but usually I. I like to make stuff up that's for personal use, but boy, pattern designing and pattern writing, I, I just don't think of myself that way. Um, I don't, uh, and I, I, these days, honestly, I don't find that it's terribly worth it either. 
I, I've never written patterns that sold in the thousands, which means that the chance of my ever recouping the time that would and money that would go into putting the pattern together, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. And you don't have to grade patterns for Dolores. No. I'm and honestly, um, that would be one thing I have never done. The only fitted garment I ever designed was one of my actually one of my favorite commissions ever was for Vogue knitting, and it was a very ornate men's vest for a story they did about the revival of the dandy style for American men. And I had a ball doing it, but the only reason I was able to do it was because Vogue Knitting does the grading for you. That's that's part of their policy. So, but yeah, I've never, uh, I've never designed any pattern that needed grading. And yeah, Dolores is is one size, and she's small, so that just it it all helps. Yeah. So actually, let's go back to Dolores and the Panopticon, which I think is where a lot of people came to know your work. And, uh, you know, you wrote the the Panopticon was this tremendously entertaining blog. And you had this sort of character, Dolores, who really took of her own. Yes, she sure did. Uh, and, it, and it came out of um, it came out of real life. I there was someone who was giving me the amazing gift of a spinning wheel. I was going to learn to spin. And while I was waiting for the wheel to arrive in the mail, I canvassed older, wiser spinners that I knew about what to do. I didn't know where to get fiber. It was the local shops around me didn't carry anything to do with spinning at that point. And um, the, the short version of it is that uh, one of them gave me a, a tip off to a fiber farm and said, they're cranky and old fashioned and you have to call them, but they, their fiber is wonderful and it is just incredibly reasonably priced. And I thought, okay, so I made the call. The call did not go very well. I was very confused. They were very angry on the phone the whole time, like I had caught them in the middle of, I don't know what, I don't want to think what, but they were angry and sort of blunt and disorganized to the point that when I hung up, I realized I wasn't entirely sure what I had ordered. And um, from that just came a moment when I thought, well, with my luck, you know, I was trying to order Romney roving. That's what I've been told to order. And I thought, you know, with my luck, they misunderstood me and they're going to send me a sheep. And, um, I won't even get a nice sheep, the sheep that I would wind up with instead of being this kind of sweet, fluffy little creature that's, you know, kind of dim, but good natured. Instead of that, I would get just, you know, frankly, a bitch. I would get a really, really nasty, foul tempered sheep. And um, I started writing about it. And I only planned to write maybe two little blog entries about it. But yeah, people liked the stories. And, um, and even to identify with Dolores, which kind of scares me a little bit. <laughs> and Dolores ran for office in what, 2008? That's right. Yeah. Back when yeah. I still thought that presidential elections could be funny. Um, she, she ran for, for president. We had a lot of support from around the world for her candidacy. She did not win. Um, spoiler alert. Um, but yeah, she, she ran for president. Um, she at various times has interfered with Royal weddings um, and uh, 
is is actually is at present banned from traveling to the entire United Kingdom because of an incident that happened at Windsor Castle. She can't seem to try to keep away from the Queen. I mean, just the things that have happened um, in 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 dealing with her. But uh, yeah, but eventually we got to a point where um, we got the idea of doing this project with webs, where we would actually have a Dolores that you can that you can have at home, a Dolores home game, if you will. And um, I, I don't know why anyone would voluntarily invite Dolores to come stay with them, but many people have. And and I have to admit, you know, although she's a very difficult couture client, um, designing the outfits uh, is a, it's a giggle because usually there's a little bit of outrageousness to them. You know, I mean, her... Her Halloween costumes, for example, last year her Halloween costume was sexy pumpkin, and uh, this year she was a sexy vampire bat. And <laughs> this is more interesting to me, honestly, than you know, like doing something for a magazine where they're like, "We'd like a quiet oatmeal cardigan, uh, maybe with cables on the sleeves." It's like nothing against that. It's just it's more fun for me to figure out how to knit the wings for a vampire bat costume, you know, or how do you make a pumpkin? sexy (laughs) i guess it shows a lot of leg and we and we did so it was a very shapely curvy pumpkin because dolores is very much about that she's like whatever your shape is that's the shape that you show off and she's curvy so her pumpkin was curvy and then um we did a kind of uh vine pattern fishnet stocking to go with it to just amp up the the oomph the va-va-voom if you will. Um, and then there's a little like pumpkin fascinator, like pumpkin, pumpkin top fascinator to go with it. I uh, just a hoot of a time with that. Um, but sometimes I just find myself asking questions as I'm designing these things. For example, the original version of her vampire bat pattern for this year had a very deep plunge in the front. And I actually found myself spending about two days of design time contemplating whether it could be left as is or whether I really needed to put kind of a lacy panel in it. And eventually I sided with the lacy panel. Honest to goodness, I had, you know, and we're, we are talking here about a stuffed toy sheep. And it was, I'm just like, no, it looks too, it's too much. There's, it's, it's just a little too close to penthouse after dark kind of material here and i just thought i just i can't i can't i mean webs already is wonderful in how how far they've let me push the bar with some of these costumes and yeah so that the final version of the bat costume has a has a sort of modesty lace panel in the in the v which plunges to her navel and a little bit below so yeah yeah it's mm-hmm. but it's you know, the anatomy of a sheep is not. <laughs> so there's this sort of levels absurd of absurdism because you, you have a, a, a. Are you going to be one of those nitpicky people who, who tells me about how her bikini is incorrect because it only has two cups <laughs> at the top? Are you going to are you going to no, are we going to. No, have no, to no, no, no. Um, I was more thinking about how how funny it is that. So you already have this one level of absurdism where you have a sheep, a sheep who's a who's a person whom you're dressing, but then, you know, you said you don't know why somebody would invite Dolores into their home. I'm sure that people have brought you Dolores at events. 
Oh, oh, that's one of the most fun things. This started with um, a big Dolores fan whom I won't name in case she would not want me to mention her name, but she's, she's a big old, big old Dolores booster from way back. And she brought her finished Dolores doll uh, to an event and had me use a Sharpie to tattoo Dolores's butt. And this has now become a thing. I mean, of course, sadly interrupted for the moment since we can't be in person um, with with Dolores fans. But um, the last, uh, oh yeah, it was at Stitches at Stitches West. I appeared just about every day between classes. I went to the Webb's booth, and we had what they 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 dubbed the um, the Dolores experience. And I had a selection of sharpies and. I would say, let's see, what do we, the final count was something like a little over two dozen people brought their Dolores dolls to me so I could tattoo their butts. Um, <laughs> and, and it was a, it was a riot. And at the same time, I just thought, well, here's my life now. This, this <laughs> is my life. I am, I am standing in this enormous fiber marketplace in California and people are having me draw on the butts of their stuffed animal that they've made. And this is the choices that have led me to this moment. Yeah. The many textile lives of Franklin Habit. Exactly. You know, but I'm not digging a ditch on the other hand. So that's, you know, I'll take it. I'll t- I have done worse things for a living. Up until say this year, you were spending a, a great deal of time on the road. And I suppose like a lot of us, you've suddenly found yourself with a ton of time at home. Mm-hmm. Um, and through Patreon, you've sort of found a way to, you know, pursue your own interests in bring us into your home without, you know, the the crush of people, you know, breathing on your stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's I have to say that's been amazing. That's been transformative because I am naturally honest to goodness i'm a very shy person who pretends not to be shy so i can do my job but establishing the patreon campaign it's um it's it's so much like going back to the best parts of when i started blogging and when i started teaching i can share what i'm working on i can share it freely and um, not always have to worry about putting into a final finished form. My my patrons see a lot of in progress stuff. They see a lot of behind the scenes stuff, and um, bless them, uh, they find it interesting enough to subscribe to my feed. And um, I can I can make things for them, and um, it's allowed me to spend more time following curiosity instead of always being worried about packing for the next event. And I honestly, I absolutely love it because that's that then has the 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 second component of that is that Patreon support allows me to do um, YouTube. And my my YouTube channel is is quite new. It took me um, about three months of study and practice and preparation to put up my first YouTube video. And amping up my cinematography, videography, motion graphics and editing and audio recording skills, Patreon, my Patreon patrons allowed me to do that, which means that now I can do even more stuff that I've always wanted to do. 
and um, that includes. I mean, I'm I'm putting some of what I have taught in classes. I'm now able to put on YouTube in a way that I like, and it's nice. It's a little easier sometimes for a shy person to. I do it at home or in my workroom, and then I put it out there for you, and I hope that you like it. But I don't have those awkward moments when, honestly, I just feel like an idiot where I I should say something funny or something witty or something intelligent to somebody. And honestly, I have no idea what to say because I'm just, I'm the mouse in the corner again going, I, yeah. Most of my life, nobody gave a damn what I thought about anything. So it's a hard adjustment. Uh, well, when one of the things that I've sort of seen little hints of what you're working on back to Godies is using your illustrator techniques and your motion graphics and bringing them all together with this, um, with this old book. Mm-hmm. Do you mind if I ask you what, what the project is there? Oh, no, no. I'd love to talk about that actually. So, um, one of the one of the things that I have uh, that I'm at work on right now, and a lot of the practice pieces that I've done for Patreon have all fed into this. Um, there is a 19th century poem that uh, I, I can't say I discovered it because for for a long time, I would say for a few generations, it was actually a quite known poem. Um, it has a ton of content in it about women's fashion in the 19th century, because it's a satire that focuses on, um, it will not surprise you to know, by the way, that this was written by a man. So the poem focuses on women's out of control devotion to fashion and to shopping. And right, exactly. And, you know, because 19th century men never spent money on anything frivolous or foolish. Of course, of course not. Um, and, um, I am only going to be using basically the first three quarters of the poem because the first three quarters, taking into consideration all of the, the, the baggage that they bring along with them, it's still actually pretty funny. And then this guy felt like he had to stick a moral lesson onto the end of it. And it just kills the whole piece. I mean, if he had just stopped writing this would probably still be a poem that people would know about, but instead there is just this smotheringly condescending, nasty moral lesson at the end that just wrecks it. So I'm leaving that part out. But what I'm doing is I'm going to, I'm recording the poem. I have recorded the poem. And then I'm doing something with these Godey's illustrations and illustrations from a few other period sources around the time that I've always wanted to do, which is use them to create an animation to go along with the poem that um, almost in some, in some portions allows you to feel like you are stepping into the Godey's illustrations and in some places uses pieces of illustrations a little bit like, Oh, here's something it's if I can make it work. Um, the idea is I, I just remember as a, I, I have to say, as a tabletop, as a, as a China crystal and, and silver freak sitting and watching Be Our Guest in the theater when Beauty and the Beast first came out and seeing this kind of Ziegfeld Follies performed by tableware. And I'm sort of doing that kind of thing now with these Godies pieces. So, you know, a chorus line of, of satin slippers, um, 
Esther Williams water ballet performed by little lace headdresses and and all that kind of thing. And I'm having a ball. Um, so that's in progress right now. And that's such a big undertaking that that one is actually going to have a credit crawl at the end of the patrons who have supported supported that. They've been very patient waiting for it. Um, but it's that one's taking a while. So I'm trying to release like shorter and simpler things. But yeah, I am really, really, really enjoying that, I have to say. Yeah. And there's another project that you have been working on. And I was thinking, at first I thought that the Fox and Box house, which is a dollhouse, I'll ask you about in a second. At first I thought, well, that's completely separate. But then I realized it combines history, antique things, um, a sense of whimsy, and some occasional needlework. Um, and, and so would you sort of describe for people what, what Fox and Box house is? Fox and Box is, is, I really love how you asked that question because you really hit the nail on the head. Fox and Box is probably the project in my entire life to date that most combines everything that I love because it, it all started, um, without giving you the ridiculously long backstory. Um, I always wanted a dollhouse. Boys were not allowed to have dollhouses. I found a a homemade dollhouse that probably was made somewhere between 1900 and 1920, but that was never finished inside. That was only finished on the outside, never got finished inside. Found it at a charity shop and paid $15 for it and brought it home. And it sat untouched and dusty for a long time until I found these two little turn-of-the-century figures when I was on vacation at a gift shop. And brought them home and realized that they fit perfectly into the house. And one of them is a fox and one of them is a dog. And they're both dressed in the kind of generally dandyish turn of the century style. And from there, it's turned into a project that um, that's going to become a book. And the book is going to be a um, series of stories illustrated with photographs that also in that began when I did a little photo and a little dialogue underneath and posted it on Instagram and people really liked it. And it has grown into um, a little world. And that world is full of things that I love, including um, actually the textiles are going to be a big feature of the house. Um, a lot of them will either be antiques. For example, I'm at right now, uh, what I'm working on finishing are the curtains, and the curtains are being made of various pieces of antique lace, um, that, that at, at most of which I bought uh, in Paris um, at Les Puces at the flea market. Um, some of the textiles are things that I am making or that I have made. Um, some of them are things that were made for me. For example, um, John Malarkey, a uh, card and tablet weaver and my favorite collaborator and best buddy, he, he wove, card wove silk bell pulls for me that are patterned and so unbelievably tiny. I, he used the finest, finest, finest silk threads to make these things happen. And that's a big part of the project will be that the house is going to be a showcase for textiles and miniature. So, you know, including in some places, this has been fun, um, pieces that were 
very beautiful but past any kind of useful life and in danger of disintegrating. So, example, the um, the housekeeper, Enid, um, has an apron, and the apron was made entirely out of what remained of a gorgeously embroidered white work linen handkerchief that probably was done at the end of the 19th century. And it had a very beautiful initial uh, and floral spray on one corner, but there was very little left of the rest of the handkerchief. There was enough that I was able to make her apron out of this. So I'm a lot of this is giving a second life to to small textiles that what else are you going to do with them? You know, isn't isn't that the tragedy? I mean, I think anybody that reads piecework probably knows that feeling of you you're in a, any antique shop. Any antique shop, antique small whatever, and you see the the box of, you know, any any handmade doily in this box is a nickel and still nobody's buying them. And we are people who look at that and we feel something. We know that somebody put time and hours and pride into that. And here it is sitting. Well, a few things like that are now going to, they're going to go into the house. So I, I am just having the best time, just having the best time. My, my patrons know um, they've seen a preview of the, um, the very first photo that was done that ironically was an exterior shot and I did it at a cemetery near my house. <laughs> so you mentioned that um, you know your your grandmother did a lot of handwork. You know, speaking of these doilies and boxes, do you have that sort of thing from your family? Because my mother has been trying to we have the, like I've told her I, I would like a doily, but you can't send more than three and I get six. And 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 they are precious and yet i don't have enough armchairs for antimacassars yes i oh i know exactly what you mean it's they were very prolific and and i do i do have um, some pieces from the family that i have kept but i i've had to edit even you know i you cannot keep you cannot keep everything and that's been that's been a struggle and it's part of what's helped me make peace with it was that um when i would look at what was there i would i would tell myself you know at some point you have to let go of some things or you will smother in your things and one very um, unexpected and emotional thing that i've that i had to do last year um, through most of last year and into part of this year, was I had a student, a frequent student, who made me the executor of her will. And she was, to say that she was a collector was very mild. Um, after she passed away, and I was taking stock of what was there so it could be dealt with, she had something like 39 antique spinning wheels. And they they overflowed her house and into the barn on her property. And she was, and I say this with affection, she was a magpie. If she saw it and she liked it, she would, she would take it in. And it was amazing. And at the same time, one of the things that sort of felt good when we were able to have the big sale and, and actually part of the sale, there was so much, part of it is still ongoing online. But particularly when the in-person estate sale happened, 
um, we were able to publicize it very well. World word really got out. And, um, I remember seeing a photograph that somebody put up online they had bought one of the spinning wheels and they were loaded into the back of their car. And I just thought that feels good. Can I send this out into the world where it will make someone else happy? It was sad to have lost my friend. And at the same time, it was good to feel that we, um, we got, (laughs) we got the estate dispersed in a, a really gratifying way. She lived in a very small town, very far north, and practically at the Canadian border in New York State. The, the The place was remote. It is not an easy place to get to. And so time was limited and options were limited. And very happily, the there was a father-son team in the town that did estate sales and, and, you know, some antiques and things like that. And when I contacted them and they had looked through the house, they said, now we don't want to hurt your feelings, but, you know, like spinning wheels, like, you know, an old spinning wheel, like we're going to be lucky if we get like $10. And I said, no, wait a minute. No, no. Um, what you don't understand is that what you're looking at for the people that, you know, I'm going to do everything I can to connect people to this sale. They're not, this is, they don't want to make this into a lamp. Like this will be the sale of a lifetime for a lot of people. And, and I said, you know, even some of the books in there are, they're out of print. And for the people that want them, they're very, you know, it's a big deal. And they sort of rolled their eyes. We were doing this over the phone. I could still hear their eyes rolling. And, um, I was not able to be present at the sale. I couldn't be there on the day, but I had a lot of, happily had a lot of friends who were, and um, I could sort of tell that interest was building. And I, I guess basically the upshot here is that these two guys who did a great job with the sale, by the way, I think they really still didn't quite realize what was about to hit them. Because I guess hours beforehand on the day, this house at the, out of the middle of farm fields, you know, people were parking for three miles along the roads around it and you know this was after the season and i felt for these guys and but i tried to prepare them i'm like you don't you don't get it there's going to be you think there's going to be dozens of people there are probably going to be i mean there could be like two thousand people that will show up which turned out to be about the number that that showed up for two and a half days of sale and yeah and and so they were great i mean and but it felt it was amazing to know you know, we didn't just have an estate sale. There are people now who um, who have an antique wheel that never thought they were going to have an antique wheel. And that's going to be a treasure that where it used to be one of 39 wheels stuffed into a little house. Now it's it's the centerpiece of somebody's collection. It's going to be restored. It's going to be used. It's going to be cared for. Um, and and that that felt good. You know, I guess it comes back to what Piecework does. It connects those of us for whom... This kind of thing is a big deal. This kind of thing is important to us. You know, yeah. We care about doilies and spinning wheels. You know, and when I think about the doilies that, you know, the people in my family who made them certainly cared to do a good job, but I, I'm, and I'm not sure that they would expect that their great granddaughter would agonize over it, but partly it's, partly it's in the making and partly it's in the, um, keeping the ability to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's partly what piecework does is is uh, oh absolutely 
finally, yeah. I love that. I mean, yeah, you're not su- suggesting that everyone needs to, you know, it, it, you're not trying to curate a museum. You are making sure that the the skills persist. And I, I, from the from the first, I mean, when I was a reader, when I was just a reader of piecework, that's why I started buying the magazine, was because there were these techniques in there that um, I didn't have much of a collection of antique books at the time. And the internet archives of scanned books had really not been established yet. I could pick up piecework and I could find really, really well done, engaging tutorial with background information about a kind of needlework that I had seen the name mentioned, but I'd never seen it in person, you know? And, and I love that. I, I learned, I learned a ton from piecework before I ever, ever, ever dreamed of writing something for piecework. Yeah. And I still love that about it. Well, and we are, we love having you as part of it now that you're, that you have um, parts of yourself and parts of your collection to to share as part of it. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Well, thanks so much, Franklin. And I hope that you are off to a, a wonderful, productive day of, you know, working on all of your, all of your curiosities. And I can't wait to see what comes next. Would you like to know what I'm doing next? Absolutely. Thank you and say goodbye. Um, Fox and Box and it's the cast is primarily anthropomorphic animals. I know the people I'm writing for well enough to know that I could not do this book without cats in the cast. Cats of the right sort, of the right shape, with the right look, very, very difficult to find. And I will tell you honestly, I was beginning to despair. And then I found cats produced at the turn of the turn of the 19th into the 20th century by a, a German company. It used to be very famous called Hertwig. They made China and, and Bisque dolls. And I found out they used to make anthropomorphic animal dolls where they would take, as, as you will see in this photograph I will send you, um, the body molds, arms, legs, and torso from one of their standard child or, or grown-up dolls. But then they would put the head of an animal on it. So these are child dolls with cat heads that are just exactly the right size and just exactly the perfect amount of creepy for this book. So they they truly they are startling. So <laughs> I will be I will be working on sewing clothes for them today. Thank you for listening to the Long Thread podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again.